Donaldson, Schwarber, and Revere hurt. What can it all mean? Find out on the Friday News and Comment Edition next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 8th. It's show number 16 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comment show for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at that injury to Kyle Schwarber and Ben Revere at San Diego's horrible bullpen and much more. And from the American League, it'll be Jock Thompson looking at Josh Donaldson's leg injury, Erasmo Ramirez's possible added value and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on the Astros' first baseman A.J. Reed. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at Trevor Bauer's demotion as a buying opportunity and covers the Nats' outfield without Ben Revere. In our Frequent Flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Baltimore outfielder Joey Rickard and Philadelphia right-handed reliever Dalye Hinojosa. In our first pitcher matchups commentary of the new season, Greg Fishwick looks at the first starts for number five starters. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the false sabermetric hope of Houston's dynamic bullpen. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It was a busy first week of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, let's start off with some of the most uh, surprising news in the Chicago Cubs game. Kyle Schwarber and uh, Dexter Fowler chased a well-hit ball into the gap and collided, and Schwarber was carted off the field with what looked like a leg injury. What's the news there as far as you know it? It sounded like uh, on the field it looked like a very bad, uh, possibly very bad injury. They uh, did an initial MRI very quickly and did not show any significant damage. Uh, They're going to do a follow-up MRI and uh, make sure there's there's nothing serious going on. So right now we're kind of in the midst of waiting for results, uh, but hopefully uh, Swarber avoided any serious damage. We'll know more uh, within the next day or two. Yeah, that first MRI, I think they were worried about a, an ankle injury, possibly a serious sprain. That MRI came back negative, as you said. And I think the second one, uh, the way I heard it was that it was going to be a, a look at his knee to see if there's any knee damage. And as you say, this could be good news all the way around because at first they were worried that he had actually broken his leg. Right. And so it's, uh, the, the initial uh, initial response is it looks better than they, than they had hoped, but we'll know more after that, as we said, after that second MRI. And hopefully they won't find anything uh, anything too serious. No doubt at all, however, about Ben Revere of the Washington Nationals. He's definitely strained and oblique. He's going to go to the DL. Looks like it could be a pretty significant stretch of time. It does indeed. It looks like he'll be uh, he'll be out for a while. So uh, now Washington is, is uh, figuring out how to cover. And of course, the guy that everyone is looking at to cover Ben Revere uh, while he's out is Michael Taylor. Uh, how many times did we cover Michael Taylor last week with with guys telling him he's the best bench guy on the uh, available and et cetera, et cetera. And so now the playing time has come for Michael Taylor. So uh, 
You know, Michael Taylor, I think the thing you've got to, you've got to be aware of with this guy. Last year, uh, 229 at bats. We looked at 14 home runs, uh, six, I'm sorry, 472 at bats, 14 home runs, 16 stolen bases, a 229 batting average. And that looks like what you're going to get. Um, power, speed combo, and perhaps a low batting average. So that's the thing to look at. And the forecaster with playing time, we said up 25 home runs, 30 stolen bases, but we may be looking at a batting average right around 230. And indeed, that's what the projection is. His playing time has been bumped up to over 400 at-bats. We're looking at 13 homers, 17 stolen bases, uh, around 50 runs in RBIs. But the the uh, millstone around his neck is definitely going to be that 230-ish batting average. And he's also n- not going to crack 300 on base if you're playing in one of those kind of leagues or if you're trying to figure, you know, what is the chances of this guy getting a big increase in stolen bases you can't steal first. Right, very definitely. So that's the that's going to be the big issue with Michael Taylor. Uh, you'll get the power, you'll get the speed, but uh, depends on how, mu- how much of a batting average uh, hit you're willing to take. And, of course, Matthew Dendecker, who had been sent down, has been recalled to take Taylor's spot as uh, as the bench outfielder, kind of the late-inning replacement role, and uh, he'll get some at-bats, but probably not a significant recall, would you say? Yeah, I would say not, not a significant number of at-bats for Matthew Dendecker. Our projection is only 32 at-bats at this point for the remainder of the season. But, you know, a wonderful story on his call-up. He, uh, he was, was called up. He... Uh, Got on the plane, arrived at the ballpark. The game had started. They told him to grab a bat, went out and delivered a uh, two-RBI game-winning hit. Uh, those kind of stories, sometimes it seems only ever happen in baseball. Isn't that the, isn't that the truth? Stephen Nickrand, Batters Buyer's Guide, looked at guys who are starting the season on the bench but who can often be rostered at a pretty good discount. The column mentions bench bats whose value could increase as the season moves along. And one example that Stephen cites is uh, third baseman outfielder in Miami, Derek Dietrich. Yeah, Derek Dietrich is a guy I think most look at because um, what we began to see with Derek Dietrich last year was blossoming power, uh, some potentially good speed, a, a 134 PX, a 118 speed, a good hard contact index. He can play both the infield and the outfield, which uh, give him multiple ways of getting playing time. So depending upon what he gets, you could get a, uh, a power-speed combo out of, uh, out of Derek Dietrich that could be worthwhile. It uh, looks like a guy who can hit around 240, 250, somewhere in that area. Uh, we're projected 285 at-bats, 10 home runs. Uh, not so much with the stolen bases, although the speed is good. At this point, he hasn't been given a green light on the base path. But uh, Steven said uh, 20 home run, 10 stolen base upside if he can find 400 at-bats. So uh, given the position flexibility, especially a guy worth looking at. That's right. Infield and outfield gives potential for him in the real world for the Marlins, but also for a fantasy team, adds that little bit of extra value, especially in single league formats where the free agent pool is usually really thin and it helps to be able to move guys around internally on your roster. Uh, We're projecting 285 at-bats and uh, that's where he's getting his 10 home runs. And as Steven says, if you add another, what, 115, 120 at-bats, you're looking at closer to 20 home runs than to 10. I think there's some possibilities here for Derek Dietrich and could be worth a look if he's not already gone in your league. And I imagine in most uh, single league formats, he'll be long gone. But th- he should be available in free agent pools in shallower mixed leagues, wouldn't you think? I would think so, yeah. I think he would be available in a lot of leagues and certainly a guy, as we said, worth, uh, worth taking a look at. 
Stevens uh, also covered some uh, six starter targets in his starting pitcher buyer's guide column, and one of the names he mentioned was Robert Stevenson, and he got off to a really good start with his uh, recalled first start on Thursday. Well, at least Robert Stevenson, oh, yeah, he's, he's already been up and uh, and uh, taken a first a first crack at things and so gotten a start and then sent right back down. Uh, but certainly he'll be the first guy up when there's any kind of a, uh, a problem in the, uh, uh, in the rotation. Uh, yeah, so he had a good, had a good first start. I mean, uh, uh, in doing the matchups, call him on him. We didn't have a very good rating on him. Uh, but, uh, did very well. Five innings pitch was a winning pitcher. Uh, give him, I think, three earned runs. So, uh, not a bad start to begin with. And certainly a lot of potential for Robert Stevenson as we, uh, later in the season. So, um, certainly someone to keep an eye on. And he'll likely be, as we said, the first fill-in uh, when there's a problem in the Cincinnati rotation. And the Cincinnati rotation looks like nothing but problems, so you have to like Stevenson's chances of getting in there earlier rather than later. Uh, Stephen Nickran mentioned that in the minors, Stevenson had excellent control in the low minors, but that, as he climbed the ladder, started turning into a weakness, and he's going to have to work on getting the ball over the plate. But he's a very high... Um, talent, very, very uh, solid draft pick and a long-term investment. So if you're in a keeper league, keep a very close eye on Robert Stevenson and take any opportunity you can. Uh, Juan Nicasio in Pittsburgh had a really good first start. Six innings, just a single earned run, a couple of base runners, seven strikeouts, no walks. That's a nice uh, nice first start for Juan Nicasio. Uh, we covered him on March 31st, just before the season started. Does Juan Nicasio's excellent first start make him worth grabbing? Well, you know, certainly Juan Nicasio, I think, is a guy is a guy to look at. I mean, um, I, interesting interesting thing with Juan Nicasio. We're not dealing with a rookie here, uh, but we're dealing with a guy who had a spectacular spring training. I mean, here's a guy with a uh, uh, with a career 4.88 ER in run average, 4.21 expected earn run average. I had four pitched for Colorado for four seasons, so that certainly uh, uh, certainly increased that ERA. Um, Last year, moved to the bullpen, uh, got his dom up to 10 strikeouts per nine innings coming out of the bullpen. Uh, and, and then uh, this spring, this spring, Juan Nicasio had 15 innings, 24 strikeouts, only five walks. And since that, since that control has been a bit of a bugaboo throughout his career, that was something to look at. Uh, and then that, that got him uh, into the rotation. And uh, first game out was a, a wonderful, wonderful game for Juan Nicasio. Pitched against the Cardinals, six innings pitched, no walks. One earned run, seven strikeouts. Um, so the question is, has Pittsburgh found something here? And Pittsburgh's, you know, race series is a very good pitching coach. Has he been able to make those kind of adjustments with Juan Nicasio that, uh, that could have something begin to happen for him this season? So spring training and that first outing would suggest maybe. Uh, but again, this is not a rookie. This is a guy with an established, very bad track record. So someone to keep an eye on. But if you've got a bench, he's a guy I would think about stashing right now. You know that we used to talk back in the day about the Leo Mazzoni uh, pitching coach effect. We've talked about the uh, the uh, Maddox effect down in Texas, the pitching coach there improving guys, turning their careers around. I think this Ray Searage might be another one of those guys because you talk about a mediocre type pitcher like Nicasio has been for his career, all of a sudden seems to turn things around. And you know who this reminds me of is uh, um, Francisco Liriano and Jay Happ in the last couple of years have moved to Pittsburgh and have absolutely turned their careers around and looked like completely different pitchers. And I wonder if there's really an effect of a top-rate pitching coach on improving these guys in a permanent and sustainable way because he opens some kind of thing in their mind or their technique that allows them to succeed where in the past their pitching coaches just couldn't bring that out. 
it, it may be, and it may be a matter of tweaking the delivery in some way so the ball gets over the plate instead of winding up outside the plate. I mean, who knows exactly what's going on, but I think there's enough evidence out there that suggests that a pitching coach could, could surely have an effect, and that may be what we're seeing with Ray Series. He's turned a couple of guys around, and Nicasio might wind up being another success story. And I like the fact that Nicasio's excellent first start was against St. Louis. We talked about Robert Stevenson a minute ago, and he had an okay first start. He won the game, didn't look that terrific, but he was only pitching against the Phillies, and no disrespect intended to the Phillies, but the Cardinals are a much better team. They're a much better run. They have better talent, and Juan Nicasio completely mastered them. Seven strikeouts, no walks, and six innings is a really nice performance against a really good team. That's true. It really, it really is. You know, the other thing to look at with Juan Nicasio is you go back and look at the historical record on Juan Nicasio, starting in 2013, a BPV of 47, up to 53 and 14, up to 68 a year ago. So we've seen some slow improvement anyway in what's going on. And with a good pitching coach, maybe we're just about to get to the point where he's going to blossom. Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, looked at uh, Minnesota, San Diego, the Angels, Arizona, and had some opening day notes about some last-minute changes in bullpens. I want to talk about what's going on in San Diego because, uh, boy, outside of Cincinnati, this looks like the worst bullpen in the major leagues. They're going to have Fernando Rodney they picked up in the offseason as their opening day closer. Uh, not the greatest uh, opening day closer you could hope for. Not too many skills, and they're not getting any better. No, they're not. I mean, uh, the... Um uh, Fernando Rodney simply was not good last year. Uh, actual ERA of 5.18 in the first half uh, and uh, 4.62 XERA. Horrible command ratio, 1.6 command ratio. Uh, so, you know, th- this is not a guy that you want to count on, and I doubt that he'll be able to uh, to uh, sustain uh, the role as a closer for the entire season, although maybe, you know, he's, he's, got, a, he's got a track record. Maybe he'll turn things around. Uh, at, uh, at, for, for one season or half a season, but certainly this is somewhere, um, I, and, and pitching, pitching in Petco will help him, uh, for a little while, but my guess is, uh, that, that Rodney is going to explode, implode at some point, and uh, we're going to get someone else, uh, getting the saves for, for San Diego. So the question is, who might that be? Uh, Kevin Quackenbush is a possibility. Drew Pomerantz, although a left-hander, is a possibility. Um, John Edwards is going to start the season on the DL. But he's a possibility, and Brandon Maurer is back in the bullpen and will pitch and set up initially. Uh, he's a possibility. So several several different possibilities who could take over when uh, Fernando Rodney explodes. I think the San Diego bullpen, if you're looking for saves, is definitely a place to keep an eye on. Yeah, the, the question is going to be how many of these guys do you want to roster hoping that one of them gets the job because really none of them sh- is a, a shining example of what you want in a closer. The only two with BPVs above 100 are Pomeranz, who's a left-hander, as you mentioned, and Edwards, who's hurt and is, has an elbow problem, which is also something you're not really keen on rostering. Rodney has the worst BPVs of the bunch, and he's the guy with the job. This looks like a real mess, doesn't it? It does. It looks like a mess. It's probably not as big a mess as Philadelphia. But uh, certainly it's a very messy bullpen. But it's a situation where there's some guys there with, um, uh, with good enough skills that uh, once Rodney does, uh, does fail, that uh, one of them could take over. So it's just a matter of seeing uh, who looks like he might wind up being the guy uh, once Rodney uh, falls on his face. <laughs> 
and of course the expectation is that he's going to, but uh, I like the phrase that Doug Dennis used in this column. He called him a, a vampire closer. He's going to he's going to sneak around in the dark of night and capture saves where he has no business getting them kind of thing, as Jose Mesa did years ago. You remember Jose Mesa was a disastrous pitcher who ended up with a ton of saves. Our projection, Nick, is that Rodney's going to get 65% of the saves down there, which might only be eight of them at the rate they're playing, but the uh, the rest, Pomeranz, Quackenbush, Moore, 15, 10% of the saves apiece, and Edwards is off the board at this moment because of the elbow injury. Again, uh, I don't know. I think it's a good idea to speculate on saves here, but so much is going to depend on your league rules, how many guys you can stash, what's the cost of stashing them. You know, Do you have to waive somebody good to hold on to Drew Pomeranz in the expectation maybe he does something? If you can... If you can draft or, or fab and stash unlimited amount of guys, get them all, you know, and wait for them to sort themselves out. But this is not a clean-cut situation. No, not at all. I mean, it may be a situation where you want to watch more than stash uh, and see if somebody really begins to establish themselves in uh, in tight situations. And as we progress, the thing to look at, of course, is, is what is our, our measure of leverage index, which we'll find, uh, uh, and that that will show you when the manager is using those pitchers in tight situations, and that may begin to, to tell the tale as well. Nick, thanks a million for talking with us. A messy week, and it was a lot of fun to talk with you about it. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move on to the American League and to give us the lowdown, BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to be here again. Injury news in the American League. The reigning most valuable player, Toronto Blue Jays third baseman Josh Donaldson, limped off the field after uh, grounding out uh, the other night and uh, looked like he has some kind of strained calf. Yeah, this um, this actually um, sounds a lot worse than it looked. I saw the, the, the bat that he walked off. He hobbled off. He had injured the calf earlier. Um, Sounds like he might miss a day, if if anything, or or maybe a few days. But I, it, this doesn't look like an extended period. What do you think? Well, in the media here, Donaldson has said that he plans to play uh, on the Friday night game, the Blue Jays' home opener against Boston, and uh, doesn't anticipate missing any time. It looked uh, pretty bad when he limped off the field, but according to a physical therapist I read online somewhere, the injury is actually going to be more problematic when he's playing defense or running the bases. As far as throwing the ball and hitting the ball, it shouldn't be that big of a deal because there's not that much strain on that particular part of his uh, of his leg musculature. So, And he, the physical therapist also said that uh, the injury is relatively easy to treat. He can have a boot put on that he uses like when he's not playing, of course, just to take some uh, strain off the calf muscle, and it should heal relatively quickly. Now, should he have to miss a game, is there anybody to pick up here uh, in a mixed-league format or even a, a deep single-league format that is worth having? You know, in a word, no, because uh, right now on the roster, uh, Darwin Barney is the all-purposes infield backup, so he, he would probably take uh, uh, Donaldson's place in the event of uh, a, a little bit of time off. Um, they have Matt Domingos down in the high minors. He won't get called up unless this is going to be an extended thing. Uh, so I think the Blue Jays hope that uh, Donaldson's right and that he won't be missing a lot of time. I can tell you from having uh, lived around the uh, Toronto Blue Jays for a number of years now, fairly close to Toronto, 
that uh, they are a very tight-lipped organization when it comes to talking about injuries. I suppose that makes a certain amount of sense. You don't want to alert your opponents as to what's going on. But it's uh, sometimes a little frustrating from a fantasy point of view not to know what's going on. But I have to say that the feeling I get from having looked at a lot of this stuff over the last 24 hours is that Josh Donaldson will probably not be severely affected. And at this point, anyways, I'd have to say that a DL stint looks really unlikely. Uh, Going down to Tampa... Jock, the closer situation there looks a little bit interesting. Brad Boxberger, as we know, was knocked out with a surgical procedure in the offseason that's going to put him out probably till late May, maybe early June, although he's been making noise that he's uh, planning on coming back a little ahead of that time. They thought the early candidates were going to be Alex Colomay, maybe newcomer Danny Farquhar, but suddenly there's a new name in the mix, and it's starting pitcher Erasmo Ramirez. Chris Olson looked at this in playing time tomorrow. What's going on with Erasmo Ramirez as a potential closer? Yeah, this one's an interesting one to me for for a couple of reasons. Um, first, first off, uh, Erasmo has always been an intriguing guy. He's got some skills. He's been inconsistent throughout his career, but uh, he seemed to find himself a little bit last year as a starting pitcher. Um, he's the kind of guy... Uh, who I would think might have better stuff as a relief pitcher. I actually watched him in his first outing this year, and he looked terrific. Uh, he looked very confident. He was throwing strikes. He pitched two scoreless innings, struck out a couple of hitters. Um, uh, truth be told, I actually dealt him in uh, in my uh, Dynasty um, Guru uh, uh, League, and I-, I dealt him because I'm not that um, confident in him as a long-term starter. I actually picked up... Um, one of the Dodgers' um, uh, top pitching prospects, Jose De Leon, for him. But uh, as a closer, and and in this situation, uh, it's it's kind of a fascinating uh, thing. They also have some uh, potential to fill in the gap that uh, moving Erasmo Ramirez out of the rotation because they have some guys in the uh, minors that might come up. Blake Snell's a name that comes to my mind. Alex Cobb's on the DL. He might come back after the All-Star break. It looks like the uh, Tampa Bay Rays might have some options here when they're trying to figure out what's going on here. And, of course, that still raises the question, what happens when Boxberger comes back? Does he get the closer rollback right away, or will they go with what uh, the hot hand at the time? Well, and, and Tampa's minor league pitching is one reason I find this interesting. First off, um, realize that Tampa only needs a, number, uh, a fifth starter two days out of this month in April. They have four off days. Um, so they can fill in wherever and, and however. They have uh, Matt and Andriessi, I think that's how you pronounce it, who had a pretty good spring uh, down in the minors. He's at AAA. He has major league experience. Um, but like you said, they have one of the American League's best pitching prospects in Blake Snell, who had a tough spring, um, but he's, he's very good, uh, needs to work on his command a little bit. They might be thinking that depending on how Erasmo does in this new role and depending on how Snell does in the first month, that could portend a quick promotion for Snell. They also have a guy named Taylor Guerrieri, who is now two two years off of Tommy John surgery. He's rediscovering his command, and he seems to be fast tracking his way to to a major league debut sometime this season as well. I think they would like to leave him in the minors for a little bit longer. But Tampa Bay has some depth here, so um, this new development with Erasmo is uh, is really intriguing. 
Over in Cleveland, the Indians seem to have a, some kind of a wave of platoon outfielders, especially with Michael Brantley still on the DL as of opening day, but he should be back soon. So we have Rajai Davis, Tyler Naquin, whom you talked about earlier this year, and I wish I'd have grabbed him at the draft in the Tout Wars. Jose Ramirez is there. Marlon Bird got signed. Colin Cowgill. A whole bunch of guys getting some at-bats in the early going. Something's got to shake out here. No ball club really wants to have this many guys rotating through because nobody ever gets comfortable, or that's the theory anyways. How do you think they're going to shake out over there? Well, it's funny because the early weather is playing a role in this too, and, and in, a, in a sense it's uh, it's cooperating in that regard with Cleveland because their offense is, is, is really suspect. Uh, speaking of weather, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but playing baseball in the Great Lakes in April without a dome, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why they couldn't find a good West Coast team for, for Cleveland to play right out of spring training, but uh, they've only had two games um, that, that have been playable um, going into Friday, which is today. Um, several things that I'm looking at here, obviously Michael Brantley will play when he comes back from the DL and he'll take away some of these issues uh, whenever that may be. Um, he keeps saying it's going to be in April uh, and I, I guess we have to believe him, who knows. And the second thing is everybody else is a flyer. Um, depending on the price, uh, like you, I still like Naquin. He's, he's one for two so far. He started one game, got a hit, and then as soon as a, a left-handed uh, pitcher came in, uh, they, they replaced him. Um, but Naquin's a left-handed batter, bat-to-ball guy, decent skills, great defender, and, and he had a really good spring. Um, um, I think I like him the most of these because of that. I also like Jose Ramirez. They're playing him a little bit more uh, in the outfield because of their needs. He can also run and steal a base. Um, Rajay Davis, uh, he can still steal a base, although his skills have deteriorated over the over uh, the last year or two. Um, all of these guys are flyers. Um, I like you. Give me Naquin if, uh, if for, uh, out of all of them if, um, if, if you're looking for someone who will succeed. And what do you think of uh, prospect Bradley Zimmer? A lot of people were talking about him before the season as somebody who might make the club out of spring training. He didn't, but could he be uh, on the way sooner than we think? Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing, too. He's a highly touted prospect. He's, he's Cleveland's number one prospect on most lists. He went into the year with 200 uh, high minors at bats, and by high minors we mean either double A AA or triple A. All of his at bats came in the high minors. Um, he's the kind of guy who has that kind of talent. Uh, if he goes on a on a surge, he could uh, he could do what Carlos Correa did. And there's certainly opportunity in Cleveland. So if he hits, um, Cleveland's going to need offense. Um, uh, he could come sooner than uh, a lot of people think. In Minnesota, they have a shaky rotation at best, was covered by Mike Shears at BaseballHQ.com in the Playing Time Tomorrow column. They've demoted Tyler Duffy after a pretty bad spring, and uh, so that starts to raise a question when the Twins figure out Ricky Nolasco can't pitch, who's in line for the number 5 slot besides Tyler Duffy? Yeah, the less we cover Nolasco, the better. He's obviously on the back end of, a, of an injury-plagued career. It's unfortunate, but he hasn't really shown that he can he can pitch in the majors in a long time. Um, Duffy's an interesting guy. He was unheralded last year. He posted an 8.6 dom and a 5.2 command over his spot, final five starts in September. Um, he he hasn't struck out that many hitters in the minors. He has a, a good ground ball uh, tilt and good control. Um, the real question is the uh, is the strikeouts, and of course he had a tough spring, which led to his demotion. They're hoping the Twins are hoping that he writes the ship really quickly because I don't think they want to. I don't think they want to go along with uh, with Nolasco. Unfortunately, he's also um, he's going to be fighting uh, Jose Barrios, who is the who is the Twins' best rookie pitching prospect, and uh, 
we all know something about Barrios. He uh, he struck out uh, more hitters than innings pitched last year. Struck out 175 batters in 166 innings in AAA and AA. He has a fly ball tilt, which isn't going to hurt him that much in Minnesota. It's very pitching friendly. Um, this is a guy who's coming on strong. So one of these two is probably going to take Nolasco's place sometime at the end of April. Actually, couldn't both of them end up playing? It's not like uh, anybody at uh, on the Minnesota rotation is kind of a, a lights-out guy that you don't want to do without. I mean, Irvin Santana's their number one. Okay, he's pretty locked in. Kyle Gibson had a rough start. Phil Hughes has been okay, but not outstanding. Tommy Malone, again, not the most uh, dynamic pitcher in the world. It seems like beyond Ricky Nolasco that there are opportunities in this Minnesota pitching rotation for anybody who can show something decent at, at the lower levels. Yeah, there are. On our playing time projections page for Minnesota, uh, pretty much bear what you're saying out. Uh, um, a, a lot of the guys, beyond, uh, Urban Santana is probably a number three, number four at this point in his career. Uh, and, and beyond that, it's all number four and number five types. Uh, and, and whoever pitches well is going to get an opportunity. There's definitely plenty of opportunity in Minnesota. Once upon a time, Trevor May might have been considered uh, as a possible starting rotation type guy. He pitched himself out of that consideration, I think, over the years since they acquired him back in, I think, 2012 or so from Philadelphia. But there could be a role for him as a closer in the Minnesota bullpen, the way things are shaking out. Yeah, I really like May and his opportunity in the uh, in the Minnesota pen. Now his his problem in the past he he he, he doesn't have much of a of a of a ground ball tilt. Um, on the other hand, if he's pitching short stints, uh, he's the kind of guy with with really good stuff, uh, uh, decent velocity. Um, he, and his his strikeouts have always been uh, uh, above average. He struck out over over eight hitters a game in his uh, in his stint with Minnesota as a starter. Um, I watched his uh, his first two innings uh, in relief. He's actually ramped up his velocity. He, he, he uh, struck out four in his first two innings. This is the kind of guy, it's the kind of situation that seems to be happening more and more. They're trying a starter with good stuff, but who, who's been unable to succeed as a starting pitcher. They're putting him in the bullpen, and his stuff is playing up. And uh, I would not be surprised to see that happen with Trevor May. And when you think about the uncertainty surrounding Glenn Perkins and the fact that uh, Kevin Jepson, despite his success last year, isn't really a closer type. His peripherals are very shaky. May has an interesting opportunity here. Last year, it wasn't a, a ton of uh, a huge uh, sample size here. He he had 360 plate appearances against as a starter, gave up about a 770 OPS. As a reliever, that was down under 700, which is pretty good, and all of his peripherals were better. He had a higher strikeout-to-walk command ratio. He had a higher uh, strikeout ratio, almost uh, almost one and a half times, from 7.9 as a starter to 10.6 strikeouts per nine. His whip was lower. His ERA was quite a bit lower, 287 to 443. I mean, it could be that this is one of those cases where a guy wants to be a starter, but his skills say, whatever the case might be, his skills say, you're better off as a reliever, and, and usually that means he doesn't have that third good pitch. Yeah, and it may be anecdotal, but uh, again, I'm looking at his velocity charts now, and it's only been one game, the two innings that he's pitched, but he was throwing the ball at 94 miles an hour, which is a tick above what he was doing as a starter, so uh, it's very possible that his stuff could uh, could play up in short stints more than it did as a, as a starting pitcher. 
And finally, since we're talking an awful lot about pitching today, Jock, we might as well look at the Angels in Oakland. Some fairly serious disasters uh, taking shape in both of those places. The Angels just lost Andrew Heaney for at least a month. It looks like Nick Tropiano is going to replace him. What's going on there? Well, with the Angels, uh, like you said, they've just lost Andrew Heaney, uh, likely for a month. Um, The Angels say publicly they're not that concerned with this injury. Um, There's no danger of Tommy John surgery. It was a uh, um, a strained uh, flexor uh, tendon. Um, they're going to rest him for two weeks and see what happens. Tropiano's going to slide into the rotation. Uh, now they have to worry about Jared Weaver because Jared Weaver's velocity still hasn't uh, hasn't improved that much. Uh, he's going to pitch Sunday. We'll see what happens there. Um, but uh, Tropiano now will will take over for the Angels. I like Tropiano as a flyer. He had a very tough spring, which makes me a little shaky. On the other hand, uh, his first start coming up will be against Oakland, uh, and I think it'll be in Oakland. So that's not a bad streamer for um, for um, those of you who like to do that to take. And what about the Oakland situation? It may be even worse. Yeah, Oakland's situation is worse because the number two and number three guys, or the, the, the expected going into the into the new year, were Jesse Hahn and Rich Hill, and neither of them have broken from the gate well. In fact, Jesse Hahn, as I mentioned in my Playing Time Tomorrow piece, um, has been promoted. He gave up 19 runs in 15 innings in spring training. He's actually throwing less breaking pitches just simply because he he thinks it, and it makes sense, that uh, it's putting stress on his elbow, and we all know about uh, Jesse Hahn's elbow. He's had Tommy John surgery. He landed on the DL with an elbow sprain at... Uh, um, or an, uh, with, with a strained forearm at the end of uh, last year. He missed the last two months. So if he's not throwing that breaking pitch, um, that certainly may be impacting his um, uh, uh, success. And then you have Rich Hill, who basically um, he's had chronic control problems his entire career, except for those four starts that he made uh, in the majors last year, which convinced Oakland to sign him to a one-year, $6 million deal. But those control problems have resurfaced this spring and even in his first start uh, in Chicago. So those two spots are wide open, and right now they're, they're filling in with uh, Kendall Gravelman and Chris ba- Bassett. Those two are both number four and number five starters. So um, um, Oakland's got some issues on their hand. Now, uh, I got some raised eyebrows in Tauor's AL in a $1,000 Fab League. I spent $201 to get Sean Manea because it looks to me like Manea's got more skill than any of them, and uh, I know he's not supposed to come up till mid-year at, at the earliest. I think he could be up a lot sooner than that, and I think he has the tools to be uh, a pretty useful contributor ahead of some of these guys that you've talked about. Yeah, I think Manea's problem, I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely right. He has the skills, and he impressed early in spring. Um, He's been nursing a groin injury, and he hasn't pitched since March 25th. Uh, and the one problem with Manea, he's shown some fragility during his short uh, professional career. He's had hip surgery. Um, he had an abdomen strain that kept him out most of the first half last year. Um, and honestly, with just 50 innings uh, above high A, I think Oakland would like to see him get healthy and regroup before they throw him into the fire. Um, Felix Dubrant uh, was supposed to um, fill in for um, Jesse Hahn, and he came down with an elbow strain. Now they're looking at Eric Surkamp, who um, uh, is going to start next week. Um, he's a soft-tossing journeyman with uh, a, an ERA of over six and about 57 major leagues innings. Now he's averaged a new cutter. Uh, Rod Truesdell talked about that, or I'm sorry, he's developed a new cutter, so maybe that'll help with his um, with his effectiveness, but. Uh, 
there's a guy who who I don't think we can rely on for too much more than eating some innings, maybe over a spot starter, starter two until further notice. The A's also have Henderson Alvarez, who's rehabbing from sh shoulder surgery. He's not going to be ready probably till early May. So um, April looks like a real crapshoot for the A's as far as their rotation goes. It does indeed, and I have to say you haven't filled me full of confidence about my Sean Manea pickup, but I'm going to try to retain an optimistic and sunny outlook on that proposition. Uh, Jock Thompson, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll catch up with you. Shoot. Jock Thompson, thanks for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next Friday. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. And he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our commentaries are coming up next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy with a special draft day offer for listeners of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Over the next couple of weekends, fantasy baseball players like you will be heading into drafts and auctions. From Arcadia, California to Yazoo City, Mississippi, and from Albany, New York to Walla Walla, Washington. We want you to take BaseballHQ.com into your draft room to help you come out with a winning team. Baseball HQ has a complete set of draft tools to help you have the best draft you possibly can. For straight draft players, we've just updated our comprehensive straight draft guide. For auction players, our custom draft guide lets you set your league's parameters. Not just for scoring categories, but for hitter pitcher splits, category weights, position scarcity, and much more. And then you get customized player value projections that will put you miles ahead of all those guys in your league with their magazines. And every fantasy drafter will be able to use the spring training wrap-ups in our buyer's guide columns, the news and analysis in our playing time coverage, strategy ideas in our gaming columns, ongoing performance analysis in our regular facts and flukes columns. Even our industry-recognized fantasy research can give you the edge. Would you like to know how catchers influence fantasy value for pitchers? Our new study on framing will tell you exactly that. And if you like to play some long shots, and we all do, you'll get valuable insight from our speculator column. All of this and more is yours at BaseballHQ.com. And we have a limited time offer for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. We'll give you a $10 discount off any subscription. Just enter the code HQRADIO, all one word, in the coupon box at checkout. Remember, that's HQRADIO, all one word, in the coupon box at checkout to get $10 off a draft prep or full season subscription to BaseballHQ.com. Act fast, because this offer ends at 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, April 3rd. Once again, HQRADIO, all one word, in the coupon box at checkout. Have a great draft and a winning season with us at BaseballHQ.com. And thanks for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We have our Baseball HQ Radio commentaries coming up, but first, let me tell you more about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is always ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, just for example, in the GM's office column, Brent Hershey has his content Q&A for the new season. Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation column is a free read this week. And he gives you a chance to look at Brandon Belt, Gerardo Parra, Stephen Matz, and others. And Doug Dennis's bullpens column, which we talked about earlier, looks at bullpens in Arizona, San Diego, and others, and has some opening day notes. 
During the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchup reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, minor league scouting, and of course, the projections and other roster management tools you can use to dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for those regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Astros first baseman A.J. Reed is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the dust has settled on spring training and most fantasy owners have had their drafts, it's time to start thinking about some top prospects who have started the year in the minors but could be called up sooner than anticipated. The Reds already brought up their top pitching prospect Robert Stevenson for a spot start, but immediately sent him back down to the minors for additional seasoning. Typically, this is the lean season for those interested in prospecting, as teams have determined that their elite prospects are not ready for prime time, or they are reluctant to start the service clock and lose a critical year of cost control. Still, every year there are several surprise call-ups before the June Super 2 arbitration deadline. One player who could be called up sooner than anticipated is the Houston Astros' A.J. Reed. The 22-year-old Reed has the best raw power in the system and in 2015 hit 340 with 30 doubles and 34 home runs between high A and double A. Reed definitely has some swing and miss to his game and needs to make more consistent contact, especially against lefties, but he had a strong spring training hitting 311 with 3 home runs and 48 at-bats. For now, the Astros will roll with the surprising Tyler White, but if White struggles and the Astros' playoffs hopes start to falter, the organization could turn to Reed. As a result, fantasy owners should keep an eye on Reed and be ready to throw a hefty fab bid at him if he does get called up. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edges with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage, with prospects including a wave of reinforcements in St. Louis, shortstop Saledmus Diaz, outfielder Jeremy Hazelbaker, right-handed pitchers Seung Hwan Oh and Matthew Bowman, and other call-ups. And this week in The Eyes Have It, our in-the-park scouting reports, Chris Blessing went to see a couple of likely high-round draftees this June, University of Tennessee third baseman Nick Stenzel and Mercer University outfield slugger Kyle Lewis. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those valuable at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at Trevor Bauer's demotion as a buying opportunity and the Nats outfield without Ben Revere. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. The Cleveland Indians threw a somewhat of a curveball coming out of spring training when they announced that Trevor Bauer would start the season in the bullpen. Bauer was beat out by Josh Tomlin and Cody Anderson in the back of the Tribe's rotation, but it's far too early to count out Bauer's viable rotation option, especially in AL-only leagues, as Tomlin hasn't pitched 110 innings since 2011, and even though Cody Anderson posted a 3.05 ERA in 2015, it came with little skill support given his 1.8 strikeout to walk rate and 450 expected ERA. 
Tomlin's health and Anderson's subpar skills suggest Bauer will be back in the rotation soon, where he still presents plenty of upside. Bauer's still just 25, and he's posted an impressive strikeout rate in each of the last two seasons. Bauer's issue remains his control, however, as he posted a 4.0 walks per nine last year, and his first pitch strike rate, which correlates very well against walks, indicates there's still a lot of work to be done. But if you're in a deep league with room to speculate, Bauer is likely available in your league given his current role. It likely won't last long, and Bauer's youth, pedigree, and strikeout potential give him plenty of upside once he's back in the rotation. To the National League, we head to Washington, where Ben Revere's early season oblique injury opens up regular playing time for Michael Taylor in the Nats outfield. Taylor was featured this week by Steven Nickrand in his Bench Targets column on BaseballHQ.com. Thanks to an impressive blend of power and speed skills, Taylor posted an above-average speed score and above-average expected power index in the second half of 2015, where he hit eight homers and stole eight bags and 258 at-bats. Taylor was given an upside speculation of 25 homers and 30 steals in this year's baseball forecaster, and while that's certainly a long shot, it does point to the counting stat upside that's available here. Of course, Taylor strikes out a ton, as we saw in his 67% contact rate last season, and the Ks continued to hurt Taylor this spring. But in a Washington outfield where there's an injured Ben Revere and a perennially injured Jason Wirth, Taylor figures to get a lot of at-bats in 2016. If he can cut down on the strikeouts, Taylor's power speed skills hint at a potential breakout this season, and he's probably still cheap in your league. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Baltimore outfielder Joy Rickard and Philadelphia right-handed reliever Dalye Hinojosa. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. While the biggest story of 2016 so far may be in Colorado, we hope you haven't missed the Baltimore Orioles outfielder who has quickly flown to the top of our rankings. In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll profile that Orioles outfielder, Joey Rickard, along with a Cuban pitcher who may soon become the Phillies' closer. But first, let's talk about Joey Rickard, who batted 455 with a home run at 1235 OPS his first week in the majors. That's an impressive feat, considering they didn't even hit a home run in his 29 games of AAA last season. In fact, Joey Rickard has only hit 13 career home runs in the minors. That's why it's important to remember that Joey Rickard, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Maybe Rickard isn't likely to be compared to Trevor Story, who hit four home runs in the first week of the 2016 season, but nevertheless, Joey Rickard is worth watching. According to BaseballHQ.com, Rickard has a projected statistically scouted speed index of 117 for 2016, or 17% above the average Major League player. That could translate to some steals if Rickard stays in the Orioles lineup. BaseballHQ.com is projecting 16 steals in 2016 for Rickard. That would put him on par with the 2015 totals for Miami's Christian Yelich, Houston's George Springer, and Cleveland's Michael Brantley, who each swiped 16 bags last season. 
Let's not forget that Joey Rickard had 23 steals in the minors in 2015, so projecting 16 steals in 2016 seems to be on target if he continues to get playing time in Baltimore. Not to mention, Joey Rickard has an 80% contact rate at 390 on base percentage in the minors, so the opportunity for stolen bases should be there. Then again, most people expected Korean import Hyun Soo Kim to be the regular left fielder in Baltimore in 2016. However, after Kim went 8-for-45 in 17 spring training games for a 178 average, the Orioles decided to give Rule 5 draft pick, 24-year-old Joey Rickard, the chance. And maybe you should too. While you're at it, here's another player who deserves a chance. Philadelphia Phillies 30-year-old relief pitcher, Dair Inahosa. Inahosa led all Phillies relievers in the ERA last year with a minimum of 10 appearances. Dair Inahosa's 2-0 record with 21 strikeouts and a .79 ERA in 18 appearances, coupled with an 8.4 DOM, 2.1 control rate, and 4.0 command ratio added up to an elite performance. On the other hand, Dair Inahosa's 96% strand rate in 2015 spells trouble. According to BaseballHQ.com, pitchers with strand rates above 80% will have artificially low ERAs, which will be prone to relapse. The difference between Inahosa's .73 ERA as 4.09 X ERA in 2015 also suggests a change, not for the better, may be coming in 2016. As our own Phil Hertz pointed out in the April 2nd edition of Playing Time Today, the difference between Inahosa's .73 ERA as 4.09 X ERA in 2015, along with his base performance value of 67 in 2015, do not suggest long-term success of the closer's role. In fact, at BaseballHQ.com, we've raised our XERA projection from 4.09 in 2015 to 4.93 in 2016. That should be a red flag. However, isn't it amazing how bulls always charge a red flag? Sadly, we know what happens to most of those bulls, more often than not, so don't overpay for Inahosa. Remember, Andrew Bailey and David Hernandez are also looming in the background of Philadelphia's bullpen. Well, Andrew Bailey's looming at AAA, but still, every year a few closers emerge, seemingly out of nowhere, like Sean Tolleson, who saved 35 games for the Texas Rangers last year, or A.J. Ramos, who saved 32 games for the Miami Marlins in 2015. Maybe Dair Inahosa will get that chance. Now here's your chance to add... Joey Rickard, and Dair Inahosa, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report, and here with a look at some first starts for number five starters is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to the first full weekend of Major League Baseball in 2016. We'll be relying on 2015 performance indicators for matchup ratings this month, so let's throw some off-speed stuff to start the season. Because of weather and scheduling as of this recording, 12 teams have their number 5 starters scheduled for their initial outings on Saturday, followed by their number 1 starters taking their second turns on Sunday. We hear a lot about 1-2 punches, such as the new Diamondbacks duo of Zach Grenke and Shelby Miller, but the season-long strength of a winning staff may be more evident in their 5-1 punches. No doubt you already know quite a bit about Sunday's aces, so let's take a look at some Saturday starters opening the year as the weakest links in their team's rotations. 
The American League has seven teams scheduled to send out their most vulnerable starters this Saturday. You won't see much velo in Toronto. The game features an unusual matchup of two knuckleballers. While Boston awaits the return next month of Eduardo Rodriguez, Stephen Wright represents the Red Sox with a matchup rating of 026. His opponent, R.A. Dickey, tops that with a matchup rating of 167. This may be a contest in which neither the pitchers nor the hitters do particularly well, unless you're in an OBP league. Wright is projected for a control ratio of 3.5 walks per nine innings, a dominance ratio of 5.9 strikeouts per inning, a whip of 157, and a BPV of 31. Dickey is projected for a control ratio of 2.6 walks per nine, a dominance ratio of 5.7 strikeouts per nine, a whip of 121, and a base performance value of 53. Don't be a knucklehead. Avoid both Wright and Dickey. Cleveland bumped Trevor Bauer to the bullpen in favor of 2015 second-half sensations Cody Anderson and Josh Tomlin. Tomlin is in the number five hole Saturday with a matchup rating of 144. But he's also in the Windy City to face Chicago White Sox ace Chris Sale, who has a matchup rating of 163 and is coming off an opening day PQS score of four. The fact that their matchup ratings are within two-tenths of a point, though, tells you this is not as big of a mismatch as it may seem. Tomlin's BPVs exceeded 100 in both 2014 and 2015 thanks to elite control ratios of 1.2 and 1.1 walks per nine, respectively. He had a PQS 3 and a PQS 4 in two starts against the White Sox last season, and he's worth the risk in his first start this season. Houston hopes Doug Fister can rediscover the magic of his 100-plus BPV seasons in 2012 and 2013, or at least the luck of his 2014 season, during which he benefited from a hit rate of 27% and a strand rate of 87%. He brings a matchup rating of 076 into his faceoff in Milwaukee with Willie Peralta and his matchup rating of 091. But Fister's health grade of F, including a month lost to forearm soreness last season, makes his rebound unlikely. Stay away from him until he proves he is both healthy and effective. Peralta cannot be recommended either. He had a bad second half in 2015 following an oblique injury, comes into 2016 with a projected whip of 147 and BPV of 46, and he posted a PQS score of 1 in his first start, where he surrendered four earned runs in four innings against San Francisco. In the National League, five clubs send their number fives to the hill on Saturday. The Cubs, gradually improving Kyle Hendricks, may have an even more formidable task than Tomlin going against Sale. Hendricks faces Zach Grenke in Arizona. Grenke's matchup rating is in the recommended range at 236, and he has the goods to overcome hitter-friendly Chase Field. Hendricks can only counter with a matchup rating of 122, and the 26-year-old sleeper breakout candidate is more overmatched than Tomlin. So this time around, Hendricks is not worth the risk. Philadelphia shows off its prize haul from Houston in the offseason Ken Giles trade, Vincent Velasquez. Velasquez brings a matchup rating of only 019 into City Field to face Steven Matz, another opponent with a matchup rating in the recommended range at 2 0. In the 2016 forecaster, Paul Sporer wrote that Velasquez could come on quickly with his arsenal of a big fastball, great changeup, and strikeout curve. But it would be a surprise to see the 24 year old righty succeed with his less than stellar teammates on the road against the hard hitting reigning league champions in his first National League start. Give the nod to the slightly more experienced 25-year-old lefty Stephen Matz at home. 
Mats also has the edge in projections with a control ratio of 2.4 walks per nine, a dominance ratio of 7.8 strikeouts per nine, a whip of 115, and a BPV of 108. Velasquez is projected for a control ratio of 3.3 walks per nine, a dom ratio of 10.4 strikeouts per nine, a whip of 120, and a BPV of 102. Washington's Joe Ross, younger brother of San Diego's Tyson, may be no relation to Betsy, but he could help sew up the National League flag for the Nationals as a strong number five starter. He's at home with a matchup rating in the recommended range at 201, facing Miami's Tom Kohler and his matchup rating of 059. Kohler cannot be recommended because he's a below average hurler with a projected control ratio of 3.7 walks per nine, a dominance ratio of 6.6 strikeouts per nine, a whip of 142, and a BPV of 42. But Ross deserves his recommendation on the strength of his performance over 13 starts after being called up for his debut on May 31 of 2015. He posted a BPV of 107 on a control ratio of 2.5 walks per nine, a dominance ratio of 8.1 strikeouts per nine, and a whip of 111 with a ground ball rate of 50%. So for a successful start to your 2016 season this Saturday, skip knuckleballers Stephen Wright and R.A. Dickey. Take a risk on Josh Tomlin, but forget about Doug Fister and Willie Peralta. Leave Kyle Hendricks and Vincent Velasquez to develop a little more for now. Start Stephen Matz, go with Joe Ross, and avoid Tom Kohler. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the false sabermetric hope of Houston's so-called dynamic bullpen. On opening day, number two, Houston manager A.J. Hinch announced that Luke Gregerson will remain as the team's closer and that Ken Giles will pitch in what Hinch called a dynamic role. Ordinarily, this wouldn't be much of a story. Closer keeps his job is normally on a par with such news as Kardashian sister seen at Hollywood Party. Nonetheless, Hinch's announcement inspired some interest among the baseball media and fantasy analysts. In particular, they wondered if this might be the start of a long-awaited shift in relief pitcher usage. But it seems much more likely that it won't mean much change in baseball or, by extension, in fantasy baseball. When the Astros acquired Giles from the Phillies in the offseason, it seemed certain he would be the big horse in the bullpen. They'd given up top draft pick Mark Appel and current tout favorite Vincent Velasquez and other players just to get Giles. And Giles had done well as a closer in 2015 after supplanting established closer Jonathan Papelbon. He had more strikeouts and a much lower ERA and ERA plus than Gregerson did. It looked like a foregone conclusion that Giles would replace Gregerson as Houston's closer. Instead, the Astros kept Gregerson, but Hinch accompanied the announcement with comments that suggested a bigger, more significant development, especially where Giles was concerned. He said, and I quote, I'm going to have Giles pitch in a couple of different roles, depending on what the highest leverage situation of the game would be. He also said, to win at this level and go deep into the playoffs, you're going to need guys to be dynamic, and we acquired one of the most dynamic relievers available last winter and I'm going to use him. Those terms dynamic and highest leverage fairly jumped off the page, because for years fantasy touts and sabermetric analysts have been arguing that bullpens should be dynamic, with flexible pitcher roles focused on getting the best available reliever into the game in the highest leverage situations. Hinch's comments were interpreted as, 
We're going to use our best reliever, Giles, flexibly when he can get us out of the toughest game situations. That naturally got some people wondering if this was going to be the next big win for statheads over traditionalists. Bullpen tactics are among the many potential changes being developed from big data and analytics. How would such a change affect fantasy baseball? Well, first, saves would be more dispersed, and high saves totals would correlate less well to the exceptional ratios and high reliever strikeouts because the top relievers would be throwing more 7th innings and fewer ninth innings. Lesser relievers, in turn, would be vulturing the easy mop-up saves. 11 of Gregerson's 31 saves last year were easy ones, protecting 3-run leads with nobody on in the ninth. Indeed, saves might accrue to pitchers who otherwise wouldn't even be roster-worthy for fantasy purposes. The net result would be saves would become more proportionately valued than they are now, and that might be a good thing. We'd need to significantly revalue all relievers, and we'd expect many fantasy leagues to consider adding holds to fantasy scoring. Me, I'd like to see a new category called the rescue, something really meaningful given to a pitcher who comes into a game in a very high-leverage situation and gets out clean without a base runner. Unfortunately, the Astros' decision is not likely to be the first tectonic shift in bullpen tactics for a couple of reasons. First, the team's commitment is not as profound as some interpretations of Hinch's comments might indicate. Besides his above-mentioned comments about dynamic bullpens and high leverage, Hinch also said about Gregerson, and again I quote, He's got a slow heartbeat. He's got a real feel for how to pitch. His calmness in the intense moments are critical in giving the guy the ball the last part of the game. We would not expect a manager on the leading edge of a metrics-based game tactical change to fall back on notions like heart, feel, and calmness, but he did, and that says something. Hinch also mentioned another traditionalist standby, that pitchers need to know their roles in the bullpen hierarchy so they have an idea of when to start getting physically ready to go into the game. One report quoted Hinch as saying, and again I quote, For the purposes of getting guys prepared, it's important they know generally how they're going to be used. This idea has been criticized over the years by analysts, but it has some merit, and it does relate to the issue of warming up. Managers need to prevent pitchers from warming up unnecessarily. Houston Street said recently he warms up 35 to 40 times a season when it turns out he isn't needed. Add to that his 60 or so game appearances, and Street is up and throwing 100 or more times per season. And he says, and it's hard not to agree, all that warming up is just hard on guy's arm. High leverage situations, of course, arise and subside relatively quickly. So this idea of the dynamic bullpen could add dozens more warm-ups in a season, potentially leading to greater risk of arm fatigue and injury. As well, there's the issue of knowing when the highest leverage situation actually is occurring. The leverage charts skew the higher leverages to the later innings. A one-run lead with runners at the corners and nobody out in the seventh is actually lower leverage than coming in to protect a one-run lead in the ninth with the bases empty. In other words, by holding their best guy to the end, managers, perhaps unwittingly, have been using their best pitchers in the highest leverage game situations all along. Finally, there's the money, and you had to know that was coming. If two relievers have essentially identical stats, the reliever with 30-plus saves will command double the salary or more of one with few or no saves. Now, as a veteran, Gregerson is already cashing some pretty big checks, but Giles, he's young, and he's only now heading towards arbitration. 
If the Astros can keep his saves totals down, they also figure to keep his salary down, maybe for years. And at the same time, they can get huge production from him as a high-powered setup guy. Giles is cost-controlled for years, and as a result, will probably be just as valuable in high-leverage situations as he would be as a closer, at way less than half the cost. Now, of course, it's fun to think that some kind of sea change could happen that significantly alters the chemistry of the game, and as a result of the fantasy games stemming from it. Some of these are happening, or have happened. The growing number of strikeouts, for example, the big focus on power, changes in how rosters are made up, and things like that. But the role of closers, it seems unlikely to change a lot in the near future, if ever. Saves will remain overvalued, and if leagues want to change that, they're just going to have to go ahead and change the rules directly. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, and we think it's the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hope you enjoyed Master Notes this week, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in just a few days, and our Tuesday Tout guest expert will be Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports. Always a great guest. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.